0: My name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the Associate Pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. For 51 years, Bob Edens was blind. And then... You know, by virtue of modern medicine and this really skilled surgeon who performed this complicated surgery on Bob, he regained his sight. And uh, it was pretty overwhelming for him. Let me read you what he says. And I quote, I never would have dreamed that yellow is so yellow. I, I don't have the words. I'm amazed by yellow. But red is my favorite color. I just can't believe red. I can see the shape of the moon, and I like nothing better than to see a jet plane flying across the sky, leaving a vapor trail, and of course, sunrises and sunsets. And at night, I look at the stars in the sky and the flashing light. You could never know how wonderful everything is. As we return this morning to our study in John's Gospel, and if you happen to be our guest this morning, that's what we're doing on Sunday mornings. We're working our way through John's Gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament. And in, in our story today, Jesus meets his own Bob Edens. We don't, uh, we don't know what this man's name is. He remains uh, a name throughout all of history. But we do know this, like, like Bob, he was born blind, and Jesus lets him see. And so for the first time in his life, he sees yellow and he sees red and he doesn't see any jet trails but, uh, but he does see all kinds of things that he's never seen before sunrises and sunsets and all of that. So we have the, the story of this life transforming moment in, uh, in this guy's life and it's a narrative but it, there is some exchange between Jesus and some of those around him and so what I'd like to do is just work our way through the story. It's a rather lengthy story so I'm not going to read it all in its entirety to start with. Instead we're just going to read it as we go along, and I'm going to comment on it, and what I've done is, as I've gone through the story, I have found a number of things that I, I think are applicational, even though it's a narrative, even though it's just a story, I think there are some things that we can learn that'll help us as we, you know, try to navigate life, you know, today in our day. So that's what we're going to do, I'm going to point out these things, and we're going to work our way through the text. I'm going to begin with with my first my first observation, the first Uh, reality thing that I want you to note, and it's this. Suffering in life doesn't always come about because you did something wrong. I want to say it again. You don't always suffer because you've made a a mistake. You've sinned. You've done something wrong. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As Jesus was passing by, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. Up front, I want to tell you, this is going to be my most lengthy point, but uh, it's imperative that we understand what transpires here and what Jesus says. From the text, as we'll work along our way through it, you'll see that the Jews of Jesus' day believed this man was suffering because either he had sinned or his parents sinned. When we get to verse 34, the Pharisees, when when they're asking questions of this guy who was once blind and now is not, they say to him, you were born entirely in sin. And are you trying to teach us? Well, what that means, what they mean by that is, what do you say? Man, you were, you were born blind. You were such a sinner. You were born blind. In other words, in their mind, they associated his blindness with his own failure, or the failure of his parents. Now, before we just say it was them, his disciples had the same opinion, right? Because they asked the question, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that this happened to him, that he was born blind from, from, from birth? And again, now before we say that just about them, can I say that for, for us as well, we tend to associate suffering with doing something wrong? If you don't believe me, let's go back to the sound of music. Remember the sound of music when Julie Andrews is dancing in the, what do you call those things out there in the backyard? a gazebo that's right a gazebo thank you and so she's dancing in the gazebo with the captain and she says uh, she says these words she says nothing comes from nothing nothing ever could so somewhere in my youth or childhood i must have done something good in other words when good things happen to us it's because we do good and when bad things happen to us we get bad things so if bad things are happening to us it's because i did something bad now, unless we dismiss, you know, Julie Andrews and The Sound of Music, Christian artists do the same thing. You remember this song, Butterfly Kisses by Bob Carlyle, Christian artist? Great song about, about his daughter. And, but the chorus goes, with all I've done wrong, I must have done something right to deserve your love every morning and your butterfly kisses at night. The point is, at least all too often, we think suffering and and doing something wrong always go hand in hand now I want I want to challenge. I want to tell you that's not true. That's that's my point here. So what I want you to see is what Jesus says. Not all suffering is related to that we've done something wrong. But having said that, let's let's point out uh, that the Bible does say that some suffering comes because we've done something wrong. Okay. In other words, we 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 can be punished or disciplined by God with something that's that's we would consider to be suffering. For instance, in First Corinthians five five, a man is uh, having a, a Sexual relationship with his stepmother, and, in G- and Paul says, "Hey, kick him out of the church, that Satan might destroy his flesh." I mean, I don't know what that exactly means, but it sounds like suffering to me, right? There's another case in the same book, 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, where Paul says that people are actually dying because they're taking the Lord's Supper in a in a in a manner that's disrespectful at some level, right? Sounds like suffering there as a consequence of doing something wrong. So, yeah, I'm not trying to say I don't think Jesus is. trying trying to say that we never suffer because we've done something wrong, but he, but he is trying to tell us that's not always the case. Now, what are some of the reasons why we do suffer? Well, we suffer because we do stupid things. Not because God's disciplining us, just because we do stupid things. I remember, I remember I've told this story to a number of you, but uh, Caleb was probably, I don't know, 11 years old. He was really good on the trampoline, and he could do flips, and he could flip off the trampoline and land on his feet on the ground. And one day, one of you, I don't remember who it was, came over to my house, and I said, hey, Caleb, show whoever it was what you can do. And Caleb does his bouncing, and then he bounces and flips, and he goes to land off the trampoline. But he misses And he doesn't land on his feet, but he lands on his chest. And in that very instant, I realized, had he just a little bit more of a turn, he would have landed on his neck and broke his neck. Now, fortunately for, for me and for Caleb, it scared him so bad, he never did hardly anything else on the trampoline. If you watch the the trampoline video of Ethan and Shep, any of y'all seen that? I posted it when Shep died, but they did this trampoline video where they're doing all... Caleb never could do any of that again after that one incident, right? But I remember sitting there thinking to myself, Jimmy, you you just... you instigated that. You told him to do that. You You were... Promoting that. What kind of stupid idiot are you? Fortunately, we didn't suffer very much for that, but because of that idiocy, we may have suffered. Caleb may have suffered the rest of his life, and my family may have suffered because of a stupid decision. So we do suffer because of stupid things we do. The Apostle Paul says he was given a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. Remember that? He said, I was given such revelation from God that God gave me this thorn in the flesh. doesn't tell us what it is. Evidently, some suffering in order to keep him humble. So you, you may, your suffering may have something to do with God working in your life, seeking to, to you know, bring about humility in your heart. That might mean another reason for suffering. Uh, in this particular case, Jesus is going to say, we'll read it in just a moment, but Jesus is going to say, this man is suffering, or maybe he did say it. Did he say it in the verses I just read? He said, no, yeah, he said this in these verses. This came about so the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus is saying this suffering in this particular case, I mean, you know, from the beginning, God intended for this man's blindness to be, be something that would bring about glory to himself. Now, I don't think that necessarily means that God was the cause of that suffering. But at least God intended from the very beginning when God saw that suffering that he was going to use it for for his glory. Now it may surprise you, maybe not, but my conviction is that most sickness and most suffering in our life is not necessarily related to personal sin in our life at all. Let me repeat that, you know, and again, that might be a shock to you, but, but I, I do not believe that most suffering in our life is related necessarily to personal sin or, or, or anything personal in our life. I think we suffer way too often in life because of the consequences of Adam's sin. Uh, The consequences of Adam's sin is that death came into the world. God removed the tree of life and we all die. And so all of us, all of us are in this world from the moment we are conceived to the moment we're we're in a process of dying. We're living, but we're also heading towards death. And with death comes the degeneration of our bodies. And with the degeneration of our bodies comes, comes all kinds of suffering. You know, I watched my father suffer with dementia. You know, that, and it, was that because he sinned? Did, did he get dementia because he sinned? No, I think he got dementia simply because of the effects of, of Adam's sin on us, that, that death came into the world and degeneration takes place. And, and I think that's why my father suffered uh, dementia. I think most sickness and most suffering that we associate in, in that sort of way is really just the natural consequence of living in a broken and fallen world now you may disagree and that's fine but that's why I think we suffer and can I say this to you about that that's why the hope of the return of Jesus should be so important to us it's why we should long for it and pray for it and look for it because when Jesus comes he's fixing all of that He's making all things new. He's removing the curse. You see, the curse wasn't just on death. The curse was on, on the world itself. You know, I've made this statement not too long ago, I can't remember when, but, but, you know, I think hurricanes and tornadoes and all the things that bring havoc to our world and kill us and destroy our homes and all, those are all part of the curse. Those are all part of God's consequences on our sin, that the world itself was subjected to futility. And the promise of God is that He's going to remove all of that. And when he removes all of that, all will be made well. And so that's why I believe most of our, that's where I think most of our suffering comes from. It just comes from being alive in a broken and sinful world that Jesus is going to fix one day. Now, so what do we do when we suffer? I want to offer three suggestions to you. One is when you suffer, do some first, first do some self-examination. You remember I told you, I don't think most suffering comes as a consequence of our sin, and maybe some of it does, definitely some of it can, but I think, I think one of the first things we ought to ask ourselves, when I suffer, when, when things are going wrong and it's, and it's hurting, one of the things I ought to do is I ought to ask, God, is this here, is this something you're trying to say to me? Is this, is this something you're trying to speak to to my heart about sin in my life, or are you trying to get my attention for some specific reason? You ought to do some self-examination. Now listen, that, that's not, I'm not telling you to do anything the Bible doesn't tell us to do. It, tell us, it tells us fairly, I think pretty regularly, examine yourself. Examine yourself. You know, check yourself out. So ask the question, God, is this suffering in my life because, is it a discipline from you? Is it because of stupidity in my life? I mean, why am I suffering today? So do some self-examination. Number two, I would say, is when suffering is, is coming your way, uh, recognize and know that it may actually have nothing to do with you per- in person. It may, it, may, it may not be there because you have acted stupid or something. You know. it, it may not be about you at all. Now, Job, I think, is a good example. The book of Job was written for us to give us a good example of this. Job suffered, and he suffered greatly. And he he kept attesting to the fact that I'm not suffering because of what I've done. And everybody kept saying, oh, yeah, you have. Yeah, you have. The reason you're suffering, it's your fault. You've done it. You're just not willing to admit it. And in the end, of course, we get to see behind the curtain, and we know that's not true. Job is not suffering because of what he's done. I mean he 's suffering, but it 's not related to i mean he 's the one who 's suffering, but it 's not as a result of something that he 's done so know that know that sometimes suffering comes in your life and it's, and, uh, and it 's not because you 've uh, done anything wrong. You know when Shep died you know i 'd ask myself that question a lot, you know, maybe not a lot, but I did ask it, Lord, did Shep die because of something Because of me, because of my family, or is that why he died? Did Shep die because of something that he did? And and at the end of the day, I I don't think so. I mean, you know, I may may, when we meet the Lord face to face, I might find out God had a purpose. I I think one of the things right now we see through a dark glass. It says, right, one day we're going to see, you know, face to face, we're going to know clearly, and so I, I may know. On the other side of glory, on the other side of the return of Christ and the establishment of His kingdom, I may find there was a purpose that God brought that about to, to, for, right? But at this point, I don't think that it's because of sin or, or, or whatever. I, I personally think Shep died as a result of, of just the way the broken world is. Number three, know that, know that God can use our sufferings, in, the suffering in my life, to, to, to a good end Know that. So here's what I want to say to all of you. Listen, listen carefully to this point, okay? When you suffer, know that God can actually use your suffering for something good. It, it's not, even, even if it's just because we live in a broken world, God can still use our suffering to bring about um, something for his glory, to bring about the change in other people's lives, to affect our world in a positive way. The Bible is full of examples like this. Like, for instance, Lazarus. When his friend Lazarus is dying, Jesus purposely waits for four days. Now, he could have gone on ahead and saved Martha and Mary, lots of suffering, right? The death of their brother. But he didn't. He stayed back four days. And he did so for a purpose, that so that he could bring Glory to God in a special way by raising Lazarus from the dead. At Peter's death, the Lord says to Peter in chapter 21 of this same book, verse 19, that the way he would die would bring glory to him. The, probably one of the most famous verses is, is chapter 50 of Genesis when Joseph Joseph's brothers are afraid that, they're, that he's going to take his revenge on them, and he says to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So in other words, you guys are planning evil, but God in his ability and his omniscience and omnipotence, he, he's... He's taking what you're doing, he's going to actually work it out for something good. So God can take suffering that comes in our life and he can bring something good out of it. So, not, not that that's a way of totally ridding yourself of, of the pain that suffering brings, but it is, it is somewhat comforting to know that when you suffer, that our God, is a, if you're faithful, God is able to take your suffering and do something, po- something positive out of it. I think that's the promise of Romans 8. You know, God was, was say, um, He causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. So I think He's saying, I'm going to redeem all the suffering in some way, form, or fashion. I'm going to redeem it. You know, and, and again, you know, forgive me for repeating myself. I'm sure I am repeating this because I've told it so often. But you know, I've you know, I continually held out that you know, out of Shep's death, God was going to redeem something out of that, and 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 I did see some positive things that came out of that. Not that I'm at a point where I'm willing to trade that if I could, right? So yeah, I'd still I'd still accept Shep's death if I could go back somehow and and get all these positive things that came out. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that 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 our suffering, your suffering, your suffering, not Job's suffering, not my suffering, your suffering, that God can redeem it, and God will redeem it, and God will bring something good out of it, you know, for His glory, so you can know that. Now, I'm really at the end of this point, but I, I, I want to say this, um, because it kind of relates to this, and Dick, you talked about this at one and one thing you said, I can't remember exactly how it was, but, you know, the ultimate good in our lives is not our happiness, Although, to be honest with you, that's what we all want. I don't know about you. I want to be happy. Let's just be honest. Don't you want to be happy? Don't you, wouldn't you want to live a happy life? I mean, I want to be happy. But one of the things that I have to accept is that, as a follower of Jesus is that happiness isn't the end-all goal for me. It's for you. It's not, it's not what God desires of us ultimately in life. It, 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 he wants to promise us somehow ultimate happiness. That's, now, excuse me. God God just spoke to me in my heart, even as I said that. He said, you're wrong, and and I am wrong, because at the end of all of this, there is going to be The redemption of all things. And I think that true happiness will be part of God's ultimate kingdom. So let me back off that statement just a bit. But in this life, prior to the coming and return of Jesus, I don't think happiness is the end goal for all of us, right? And uh, so the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the Philippian church. And this is what he says. He says, I have given up the pursuit of happiness for Jesus. If you know your Bibles, you're saying, I don't remember that. Well, this is actually how he says it. He says, I've given up everything. Everything. I've given up everything for Jesus so that I might gain Jesus, might gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Paul says, I've even embraced suffering, suffering, knowing that all that matters is Jesus, that I might have his righteousness, and that I might be resurrected from the dead just like he was on that day. He says, that's, that's my end goal. So the, the ultimate goal of our life is not our pleasure, and it's not a life free of suffering. It's not, everybody. The, the ultimate goal in our life should be to know and to love God. Really, that should be the ultimate goal of our life, to know and to love God. And when God allows pain and adversity in our lives, it should never impede our march of faith. I'll tell you what, I've seen so many people over, you know, my life, I've seen so many people throw in the towel when God allows suffering in their life. You know, why, why did God do that? Why did God allow that? Why did God cause that? I mean, I, I don't know the answer to the why's, right? You don't either, ultimately. But too many people, when, when the suffering comes, they, they, lose, they, they lose themselves. I mean, I really want to encourage you, don't lose yourself. Jesus says to them, you know, suffering your life's not because it's not... It's not necessarily because of suffering, and I suggest to you that that might even be, excuse me, suffering, you know, not because of sin. I suggest to you that might even be a minor reason why we suffer. Let's go on. I told you that was my last, my longest point. These will be shorter. Uh, so here's the second thing that, that comes from the story for me, and that is, let's be diligent. I want to, I want to urge us all at the words of Jesus to be diligent in the work of Jesus. So, in verse uh, 4, we continue reading. Jesus is speaking. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. Now, in this particular case, Jesus is talking about himself when he says time is short, night is coming, that, that you know, for him to work. But, but really, the truth is time is short for us. And he uses this metaphor of day, you know, day is here and night is coming. And we all know, you know, a day just kind of goes by really quick and night gets here in a hurry. So Jesus is speaking metaphorically. And he's saying, why we have the day? While I'm here, we need to work hard. Now, I want to take that out of Jesus' day and I want to put it in our day. And I want to say, your time is short. So why, while you have your day, I mean, guys, let's give ourselves to the kingdom work. Let's give ourselves to the things that God desires for us to give ourselves to. It's too many of us, it, I think it's because of our rich American materialism. And I'm not, I'm not trying to just attack our materialism. I'm saying that because of that, It's just too easy for us to live just for ourselves rather than to live for the kingdom of God. So I ask you, what are you living for? And I realize that much of our life is just, it's just spent in living, and that is okay, right? God made us living creatures, and so much of our life is involved. He told us this. Much of our life would be involved in just, you know, getting food. Of course, we don't do it. We're not an agricultural society much anymore, so, you know, we work, and we exchange money and stuff like that, but, but we're working to, to live, right? And that's okay. But, but Jesus is saying, really the focus of our life should be on not just ourselves, but on the kingdom work, on the kingdom work. And so I want to ask you, what are you doing with your life? It's a rhetorical question, but I'd really like you to ask yourself that question. What are you doing as it relates to the kingdom of God? What are are you doing with your life? Are you spending using your life for the things that God would want you to, or are you just investing your life in yourself and in what, what you want? Now, can, can I, I want to I suggest something to you here. And it's funny, I had a conversation with Lee Hess this week, who's the pastor of Carrollton, and, and he was telling me his perspective, and, and I agreed with his perspective, which is what I'm going to tell you now. And I actually took it a step further than him. You know, ever since I was a young Christian, I was taught that you know, my whole mission in life is to make disciples, right? To make disciples, uh, to share Jesus, make disciples who will make disciples. And that's what I'm supposed to be doing of all the earth. And And that has not changed. I still believe that. But most of my Christian life, I've lived as if that's the only, that's the only mission, right? It's not my only mission. God gave me my first mission back in Genesis, which is to go therefore and, and basically be a vice regent for me in the world. He sent Adam and Eve out and he said, go and have dominion over the earth. Now, I don't really have time to defend this, but you know, I think the whole idea of having dominion over the earth has an awful lot to do with, uh, you know, taming the world as it is. But, but I think it also has to do with loving people being just, loving justice, working for justice in the world. In other words, you know, G- Jesus taught us to pray, uh, our Father who art in heaven, thy will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven, right? So, I mean, we could be just be praying that, and we're just praying, Jesus, come back and make, make everything on the planet like it is up in your kingdom, and your in your realm. You know, make everything in our realm like it is up in your realm. And he is, in a sense, going to do that. But here's my point. My point is, I, mean, I think God wants us not just making disciples, but as we live in life, seeking to redeem the world, seeking to change the world around us. So here, here's what I'm trying to say. What are you doing to just even make the world around you a better place? I mean, make disciples, but at the same time, seek to help the poor, to bring about justice, to, to to live in the world, to make it a better place. It's not, we are responsible. And I know you don't hear conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing preachers talk about this, because we tend to focus on all that matters is this whole thing of following Jesus. And, and I guess ultimately, you, you can make that case, I guess, because that's all that's going to be when Jesus comes back. But, but as I read my Bible, Jesus is telling us from the very beginning, he's giving us things to do. And I never see where he set it, apart, set it aside. Where did he set it aside? That we're not to be men and women that seek to make our world a better place in the name of God, in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's just not set aside. So I tell you, my whole life's changed. Man, I got, I got a two-forked mission. And it is to make disciples and it is to do everything I can to make the world a better place because I'm here and because I represent him. And so here's my point. Time is running out. You don't have a lot of time. What are you doing on those two, what are you doing on those two fronts? You know, are you, are you living for just yourself yourself? And your stuff, or do you, do, you, do you have a vision of what God wants you to do? Henry Blackaby said in his discipleship material from Experiencing God, he says, God is always at work. Find where God is working and just jump in there with Him. And, and that's what I'm challenging you to. Number three, be careful not to prejudge men and even to prejudge the work of the Spirit of God. Verse 8, his neighbors and those who had, had seen him, talking about the blind guy before as a beggar, said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? And some said, he's the one. And others were saying, no, but he looks like him. He keeps saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud, uh, spread it on my eyes, and told me to go to Siloam and wash. And so when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he, they asked. He says, I don't know. I love this part of the story because his neighbors who have seen him their whole lives, they don't believe it's really him. And why don't they believe it's him? And I know I'm speculating a little bit, but I think it kind of goes back to point number one. There's no way that a guy born blind who has God so against him, right, because of his sin, there's no way that this could be the guy that God has healed. And again, I'm speculating, but that's what I'm going to speculate, and I'm going to build my point off that. And, and so, so they're prejudging this man as to be someone that God cannot work in his life, and they don't believe it's him because, because of who he was. Now, here, here's my point with this, and, and that is that it's really easy for us to look at someone. We, we don't look at a blind person today and think that necessarily, but there's a lot of other people we look at and we say, well, God's never going to be working in your life. God's not, God's not dealing with you because of what you look like. And, and, and it's, and and it's not just you, it's me. I mean, it's easy to prejudge people and to think, I don't need to speak to that person because, you know, they're not going to be open. They're not going to be open to God. Here's my challenge to you. You never know who is open to God. You never know who God's the Spirit of God is working on. And, and, and you know, you don't you don't know what circumstances have gone on in their life. You don't know what challenges that you don't know what suffering they're experiencing. You don't know what's going on in their life. don't, don't prejudge people. That somehow or another God's not going to be working in their life, so I'm just I don't need to speak to them. Number four, do not put God in your box, verse 13 to verse 17. They brought the man who had used to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath day. Then the Pharisees asked him again, how did he receive his sight? He said, he put mud on my eyes, he told them. I wash and I can see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, said the man. Now, have you ever thought something like this? You know, if God is working, he would never do it that way. You know, I mean, there's no way that God did that because that just doesn't fit in my way of how God might work. That's what's happening here. Right. I mean, I mean, here, you know, the, the blind man confesses at one point, you know, we don't know anybody who's ever been born blind, who's been made to see. We don't know anybody like that. And uh, his point is that Jesus must be really somebody special. They can't see past that. Jesus is doing something that they don't think he should be doing i.e. healing on the Sabbath. So therefore, this man could not be from God. You know, uh, it is easy for us to, it is easy for us to have a preconceived notion of what God is going to do and not going to do and and miss God because of that. You know, in the Old Testament, there's... um, And by the way, I don't think anybody thought that God would make mud out of spit, put it on somebody's eyes, and tell them to go wash their face, right? I don't think anybody would necessarily think that's how God's going to do it. But in the Old Testament, there's Naaman. Remember Naaman, I think it was either Elijah or Elisha, tells him to go and bathe down in the Jordan River. And here's what Naaman says. He says, Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abna and Far?" Far, par the rivers of Damascus better than the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went in a rage. So here's God telling Naaman what to do. You want to be healed of your leprosy? Go down to the Jordan River and bathe in the Jordan River. Naaman says, "Man, I thought for sure he was going to come out there and do all this, you know, hocus pocus stuff over me, and he didn't do any of that. He's our rivers are better than that. Why can't I go wash in their rivers, right?" And of course, you know the story, but his, I think his maidservant said, you know, if, if he told you to do something hard, wouldn't you do it? Why don't you go do what he says, which is really simple. And of course, he was, he was, made, to, he was made clean when he went and bathed in the Jordan River. And here's my point. Sometimes God's going to do things that we don't think he ought to do, or he's going to use things that we don't think he can use or will use. And we've got to be careful how we prejudge all of that stuff. Even as we've got to be careful how we prejudge people, we've got to be pre- careful how we prejudge things that, that God is doing. William Carey is a great example from the, uh, well, actually not William Carey, but but the old man that stood up when William Carey said, God's sending me to India. I think it was India. And, uh, and the old man said, sit down, young man. If God ever wants to save the heathen in India, he, he can do it without sending you. He missed God because he, he wasn't able to see that God was doing something outside of the box that he had put God in. You know, a modern example might be... um Here's something I read of him, about Dr. Dobson years ago. Somebody wrote this of Dr. Dobson. He's no longer with Focus on the Family, but this is what they wrote. Dr. Dobson sends people needing help to AA, this secular organization, and not to God's body where they can get everlasting help in life. God says, leave this man alone and stop supporting him until he falls down and repents. And just like Dr. Dobson says, should be done to alcoholics. Everyone who supports Dr. Dobson and Focus on the Family with money, gifts, verbal, nonverbal support, contributing to his willful sinning and the destruction of those who do not know better, may God have mercy on their souls. That was one man's opinion, a focus on the family and, uh, and Dr. Dobson. Uh, be careful. Be careful how we, how we judge how God might be using things that we think are outside of the box for God. Now, that, one caution I'm not trying to say we accept and embrace everything anybody says, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying be careful of unconventional methods of people doing things and let let god be god don't put god in your box be careful there number 5 the fear of man is great verse 18 the jews did not believe this about him but that he was blind and received sight, until they summoned the parents of the one who received his sight. They asked him, is this your son, the one who says he was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son, that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we do not know how he now sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus as Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue, and this is why his parents said he's of age, ask him. They didn't, want, they didn't want to have to answer. They were afraid of what men would do to them. You know, fear of men is a big thing for all of us. Listen carefully to what I'm going to say. I think it's probably one of the biggest things that keeps us from from really following Jesus with all of our hearts because we're afraid of what others think, what they might do, how they might respond to us. These parents were that way. It clearly tells us the reason they're behaving the way they are is they're afraid of the Pharisees. And all too often, we're afraid. We're afraid of what people will say to us, we're afraid of what people might, might do to us, we're afraid how people might cut us off if we. We really stand for the Lord, um, I really want to encourage you, and I, you know again i 'm just talking i 'm just talking unless the Spirit of God really helps us with this we 're going to still be scared of men but maybe if we get maybe if we just acknowledge it to the Lord, Lord, I'm really scared of what people think of me. I'm really scared of I'm really scared of how people might befriend, defriend me. I'm not talking about Facebook either, I'm talking about really defriending you. They might really defriend me if I were to really take a stand for you. If I really speak up for your morality, people are gonna they're gonna label me in a, in such and such a way, you know, and we're afraid. And I really just, I think we ought to be in praying, Lord, help me not to be afraid of people, but to be afraid of you. Jesus one time told us, he says, don't be afraid of men. That's what he said, don't be afraid of men, but be afraid of God. Be afraid of God, who in the ultimate judgment um, will have a say so over us. So, I really encourage us not to be like the parents and, and not be afraid. I'm almost finished. Uh, the last, the next to last one, witnessing is simply telling what you know, verse 24 to verse 34. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered whether or not he's a sinner. I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind. Now I can see. And then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you don't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? And they ridiculed him. You are that man's disciple, but we're Moses. Moses' disciples, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied, and you were trying to teach us, and then they threw him out. That's exactly what he was doing. He was trying to teach them, right? And I don't think he wasn't scared of them. Here's a guy who wasn't scared of of those guys, right? But here's the point I want you to notice. You know, when it comes to sharing Jesus, everyone, it's just sharing our story. That's all this guy did. They kept saying, who is he? How did he do it? He kept saying, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. And nobody else can do that. The only person who can do that is God. That's all I know. And he just kept saying, all I know is all I know. I'm telling you, brother, you don't have to answer everybody's questions. As, made, as bad as it made me feel, I couldn't answer Amy's questions very good or, or Janice's questions very good this morning. As, as bad as it made me feel, all I can say ultimately is I know that Jesus has risen from the dead. And because he's risen from the dead, I have hope of, of a resurrection to come. And I've told you this already that, you know, since Shep's death, God has given me a, an open door to share what I know, and it is simply this: that I will see my son again, and I and I share that all the time. And it is just, it has just become such a, an easy open. I don't want you to have my door. I really don't. But you need to find your own door to just telling people what you know. That's all you got to do. And, and and maybe all that's just simply is this: I was a sinner, but now I'm forgiven. You know, I I uh, I was. I was separated from God, but now I know I have eternal life. I mean, that's that's all you got to do. How's that be? I don't know. I know Jesus rose from the dead. In other words, guys, you don't have to know everything. You just have to know what you know and share it to be a witness. Finally, it is possible to be blind to truth and not even know it. Verses 35 to 41 to the end. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and when he he found him, he asked him, that is Jesus asked the formerly blind man, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. And Jesus answered, you have seen him, in fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. There's an old proverb that says, there is none so blind as he who will not see. There's none so blind as he who will not see. Jesus hears what happens to the man. He goes and finds him. The Jews have cast him out of the temple. Somebody, somebody one, one old-timey preacher said, the Jews cast him out of the temple, but the Lord of the temple found him. And that's exactly what happened. And he comes to him and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, you can't help but think that the man would have recognized the voice, right? That he would have known who it was. But he says, he says, I don't know who he is. And Jesus says "It's me, the one who stands in front of you. And and the man says, I do believe. Now, here's what I want you to recognize. Jesus is asking for personal commitment to him. He's asking this man for a personal commitment. Do you believe in me? And the man, the man says that he does. And then he says he calls him Lord and he worships him. Here, here's a really neat thing. If you note the progression in chapter 9, you'll notice that he calls Jesus a man in verse 11. He calls him a prophet in verse 17. He calls him Messiah in verse 35. And then he calls him Lord and worships him in, uh, in verse 38. Jesus said, I came into the world uh, for judgment. Isn't that a contradiction of what he said earlier? Remember he said in chapter 3, I did not come into the world to judge the world. But here he says, I came for judgment. What does he mean by that? Well, here's what I think he means. I think he's saying just what he said in chapter 3. He did not come at that point to be the judge over all the earth. He will be that one day, but he isn't that now. But he did come to bring about judgment. He did come to make a dividing line. And the dividing line is Jesus. Listen to what I'm saying, everybody. The dividing line is and always will be Jesus. What do you do with Jesus? And uh, if, if you know you are blind and you're looking for him, I believe you're going to find Jesus. But if you think you're see, and you see, and what you see is not Jesus, Jesus is saying, you, you are blind. Only the man who sees his weakness can be made strong. Only the man who realizes his blindness can be made to see. Only the man who seeks or sees his sin and seeks the Savior will be forgiven. You know, some people say that you can't, you can't even do that. You can't see. You can't See the Savior ever? I'm not convinced of that. I personally believe that no man can save himself. I personally believe no man can no man can do what's necessary to somehow eradicate or atone for his own sin. But uh, but that doesn't mean I, I believe that doesn't mean that a man can't see his own sin and turn to the Savior for forgiveness and for salvation. The Pharisees were listening in. They say, are you saying we're blind? They get it. They know he's talking about them. Are you saying we're blind? He says, you know, if you, if you said you didn't understand, you wouldn't be blind. But the fact that you say you do see and you really don't, yeah, you're still blind and you're still in your sin. Here's the, here's the truth that we've got to see, folks. Listen, you can think you see, but still be spiritually blind. The Muslims are that way. The Hindus are that way. The Buddhists are that way. If I can say this, many Americans are this way. Thinking they see. Thinking they know. But they don't know. They don't know. The irony is that even in a meeting like this, with me talking like this, it is possible for people to hear my words and, and and miss what Jesus is saying. No matter who you are, you are blind today if you don't know and understand your sinfulness. No matter what you think this morning, you are blind if you are not committed to following Jesus. I mean, that sounds narrow, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound narrow to you? You know, if I remember correctly, Jesus said narrow is the road that leads to life. and Broad is the road that leads to destruction. So, you know... Many people think, they see, but if you are not following Jesus, if you do not understand that Christ died for you and only by faith in Him are you made righteous, then, then I suggest you are blind. And you're probably offended by that if you don't think you are. And I don't mean to offend you. So here's my here's my invitation. So if you would just want you bow your head and close your eyes, just to keep you from, you know, keep your mind focused on what I'm going to be asking you. But I want to go back through my seven points in backwards order, and I want to offer you uh, an opportunity to respond in your in your lives to God. And one of them is the first one is open your eyes. If you're here this morning and you have not received the Lord Jesus, you are not trusting in Christ, you you don't recognize that uh, your sin has separated you from God and Christ died for you and and He's not the one you follow, you've not received Him as Lord, Then, then open your eyes this morning and receive Him. Believe on the Lord Jesus today. Come to Jesus, follow Him. So if that's you, listen, you don't need to be embarrassed. You don't need to be filled with shame. All of us, I you know, come into the world separated from God, and and by God's graciousness, He's constantly doing things. Uh, you know, if you, but if you're, if this morning you're not suppressing the truth, come to Jesus right where you sit. Okay. Number two, is there someone the Lord wants you just to tell your story to? Are you are you a, a, a storyteller of your own story about Jesus to others? If not. While you sit there, and I'm still talking, if this is the thing that God speaks to you about, just begin to pray and say, Lord, I want to I have my story. I want to be a witness. Here's the third point I made in backwards order. Has the fear of man kept you from obeying God? Is the fear of man keeping you from just being all out for, for the Lord Jesus? I mean, being unashamed, not embarrassed. But just open about who you are as a follower of Jesus. Is is being afraid of what people are going to say, your friends are going to say, or your, your co-workers. Why don't you tell the Lord, Lord, I don't want to be afraid anymore of people. Do you have God in a box, and you tell him exactly how he has to do things, when in reality, maybe he wants you to get out of his box, out of your box, excuse me, and, or, yeah, get, get him out of the box you've put him in, and, and be open to how he might want to use you in a way that you, you haven't even thought possible, or you don't even think about. I, I don't know, maybe, that, maybe God spoke to you about that. Is there a person you've given up on, somebody that you think is unreachable for Christ? Maybe it's, your, maybe it's a kinfolk person, maybe it's a friend or a coworker. And so you therefore have remained silent because you think there's no way God could touch them. And maybe, maybe God's put somebody on your heart and you need to talk to them. Just tell your story. Are you a diligent follower of Jesus? Is your life invested in the kingdom work? Or are you... Just all about yourself, your pleasures, your life, your family, your... Again, don't, don't misunderstand. You know, we live life. We have families. I get it. But there's a sense in which Jesus is calling us to make disciples of the whole earth and at the same time seek to be agents of redemption in the world. Not just spiritual redemption, but just redemption in general. That, that God might be... That, that God's will might be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Are you judging people as beyond the reach of God for any reason? I think I already did that point. And then the final first point, if you remember, was are you suffering? Are you suffering in any way? And so therefore, you know, on the verge of, of just uh, maybe throwing in the towel. So let me be quiet for just a moment. And you, with your thoughts and with the Holy Spirit, just talk with Him. Lord, even as you open the blind man's eyes and let him see, would you open the eyes of our heart to see, Lord, to see areas where we need to be encouraged by your Spirit, things that you're doing in in our lives and all around us. Help us to see those things. Lord, we confess that we can become so self-absorbed that we're missing what you're doing. So open our eyes, Lord, the eyes of our heart to see what you're doing. And even this morning, I would pray that you would open our eyes to any of these things, Lord, where where we need to... um, Exercise greater faithfulness. We need to we need to change the way we're thinking. Open our eyes to see the truth, and to walk in it. And we pray this prayer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at Bacon'sCastle.com. Also, check out our website at Bacon'sCastle.com. To get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed.